Good morning. Please turn with me today to Acts 9, verses 1 through 31. Luke here is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, starting in verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murders against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him, so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength, and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles, and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed about the Hellenists, against the Hellenists. But they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. 
So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Thus concludes the reading of God's word. May he write it upon our hearts. Ephesians chapter 5, Ephesians chapter 5, and we'll be looking at the second half of verse 21, Ephesians 5:21 b if you will, the fear of Christ. Grant just read for us Acts 9, or part of that. And there we got to behold the sovereign power of the risen Christ. And what a glorious uh, account that is. I always love reading that and hearing it, because it's wonderful to see what God, the, the power of God and how that could take someone who was a vicious enemy of the church and turn him into a servant of the church. Fear can be a powerful motivator, and religious leaders throughout history of all different stripes have tried to tap into that, instilling fear in people, hoping to make them terrified of their God. And therefore, they reason, people will obey that God. And at times, Christianity has even adopted that same practice, where... They will present Jesus sometimes as someone who is eager to punish his people for their sins. It's almost like if you hear some people talk within, and I'm I'm talking about broader Christendom, Christianity, and all the the various forms of that, uh, many which are not biblical, but they present Jesus as sitting on the edge of his throne ready to clobber us whenever we sin. Well, in Ephesians 5.21, we do find that fearing Christ is a motivator for believers. But we have to ask, does that fear motivate us by making us afraid of Christ? By getting us to obey out of terror of Christ? Are we to fear Christ with what John Murray labeled as unbelieving, anxious dread? Is that what we are supposed to, that is that how we're supposed to, to fear God, fear Christ? Well, there's really a difference between the fear of unbelievers and the fear of believers when we're talking about fearing God. Unbelievers ought to experience that anxious, unbelieving dread because they stand before a holy God and they are guilty. They ought to be anxious, realizing that any moment they can pass into eternity and find themselves standing before the holy God, the one true God who is holy and who does punish sin. They should be anxious about that. But many of them do not fear the one true God. And if they do fear, some of them fear a pagan God, others fear a misrepresentation of the one true God. Now, believers ought to be motivated by the fear of Christ, but not with that anxious, unbelieving dread. That should not be our perspective toward God. We should not, if we're believers in Jesus Christ, if we are His in His family, brought there by the blood of Christ, we should not have that sort of dread. We're going to see that for believers, the fear of Christ is a sense of joyful wonder and sobering awe at His majesty. Something very different 
from what unbelievers experience if they consider that there is a God and they are terrified of Him. Ours should be a sense of joyful wonder and sobering awe at His majesty. Our fear of God, our fear of Christ should be noticeably different from the fear that the world has of their God or the misrepresentation of the true God. Why should it be different? Because our God is like no other God. And so our fear of Him should be like no other religion. Christianity, biblical Christianity, which is what we should be striving for, not whatever concept of Christendom we may have, but biblical Christianity, it must be distinct. Now, I read uh, recently how one Christian writer and podcaster was... Uh, he seemed to admire radical Muslims. And the reason was, it, he was talking about the issue of lordship. And he admired them, saying, you know, they get lordship. They know that if their God is Lord, then they have to do what He says. And then he says that we should be the same way toward Jesus. And I just I grieved to read that. We shouldn't be anything like a radical Muslim. I mean, nothing. You know, and sometimes people will do that. They'll, they'll pick some heretical group or some other religion, and they'll say, oh, we can learn a lot about such and such from them. I always cringe when people say that. <laughs> that is not true. We shouldn't learn anything from them. And the, the fear of Christ that we're going to be talking about, the fear of Christ, the fear of God in the Bible, is nothing like what these other religions believe and practice. So look with me now uh, at the little bit fuller context, Ephesians 5, beginning verse 18. Remember the setting that we've been working through here. Paul says, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled by the Spirit. What does that look like? Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. We need to answer... Five questions at least to help us understand what Paul means by this phrase, the fear of Christ. And why does he put that here? I don't know about you, but it, it seems a little surprising. You know, it's like, well, I didn't really think he was talking about fearing God here. Even if you believe in the you know fearing God, it seems out of place at first blush. And so why is that here? And that's what we're going to. We're going to look at today. We're going to answer five questions. Let's talk about first, what does fear mean? Well, fear, this word for fear, comes from the Greek word phobos. And we get our English term phobia from it. Originally, phobos meant, it had the idea of fleeing whenever you're startled or fleeing when you're frightened. It then later in its the development of its usage in Greek uh, had the sense of panic or fear, being terrified. 
In classical Greek, it referred to standing in awe of someone or being in dread of them. In the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, uh, it translated, Phobos translated Hebrew words that mean fear, awe, dread. And in both Old Testament and New Testament, we find that the word fear is used both negatively and positively. It's used negatively for this idea of terror or dread, being afraid of someone, being afraid of something. But it's also used in in a positive sense for this idea of reverential awe and sometimes even respect. And those can be quite different, although they'll have a similar a similar basis. We'll see. This positive sense is what's being used in our passage today. So you can see where I'm going with this. If you haven't already picked up on that, is that we're not going down the path of okay? You need to be terrified of Christ. You need to be afraid of Christ. You know, because if you don't do what He's saying here, He's going to get you. We're not saying that at all. Now we're going to point out that yes, we have to take it seriously. But it's not the same as other religions where they, their God is, is just waiting to get them. And for, even for those who are faithful to that God. So that's the basic idea of fear, and it can be used positively and negatively. Now, in other passages that are talking about this concept, They say, in the fear of, or it talks about the fear of God, or the fear of the Lord. But, you know, if you you put your thinking cap on when you're doing your Bible study and you're going through this, you're like, hmm, why why does he say in the fear of Christ? Everywhere else he says of God or of the Lord. Why Christ here? Well... To answer that second question, first we say in Ephesians, Paul's developing this idea of Christ as head of his church. Remember back at the end of chapter 1, that he's head of the church. Okay, So as head, he has authority over his church. He is our head. You know, even we elders who are, are responsible for the, the spiritual life of this church and the care of this church, we have a, a, a head, and that's Jesus. He's over us. We're not, you know, the buck doesn't stop with us. It stops with Jesus. He is head of the church, and he has authority over it. He gives the directions that we must obey, and that's why we go to the Scriptures. That's why we spend so much time in the Scriptures to find out what his, has he told us, either himself or through his apostles, through prophets, Jesus is also the character that we must imitate, that we must conform to. Remember back in chapter 4, when we're talking about building up the church through the exercise of our gifts, and that he holds up Christ as the, uh, the measure. That's what we're to measure up to, the full stature of Christ. So we as a church and we as individuals are to be working to live up to his image and his character. And then, as New Covenant believers... Because, see, Jesus is the one who inaugurated that new covenant. And because he, he is the, the, uh, the one who has brought this new covenant and, and made us part of that new covenant we, because we're in him. Okay? And that means we are, uh, as, as we find elsewhere, 
we're under the law of Christ, like Galatians 6.2, for example. Okay, so what Paul's talking about here, here is very much about Christ as head of his church. And that's why he says the fear of Christ. A second reason why he's using this more specific term, uh, Christ, is that Jesus is God. He's here reflecting his belief in the deity of Christ. And we find that, that woven all throughout Scripture... You know, when we study about Messiah and, and we even study about God in the Old Testament, we find that, that even the deity of God the Son, that there is such a person as God the Son, and He, and he is God. Okay, and when you study Messiah, remember we did in the, in the Minor Prophets. When you study about Messiah, He has to be God. It's the only way that works. And indeed He is. And so, that thread of Jesus as God, that He is deity, He is God, is prominent here. And so, there's no problem for Paul to substitute Christ in place of God or the Lord, where is what you normally find in Scripture. So, he's reflecting Jesus' deity. A third reason why he uses Christ here is that Paul is showing that the teachings of the Old Testament and New Testament are tightly knit together. Paul is someone who knew his Old Testament extremely well, quotes from it a lot, draws upon it a lot, and and these are not two different religions, as some people try to say. Liberals, for example, they cringe at the Old Testament. They choose to see in the the Old Testament this, this vindictive, wrathful God, and that's all he is. They miss everything else about God. Yes, God does take vengeance on His enemies and and He punishes sin and and He does pour out wrath on His enemies. That's true. But that's in the New Testament too. But they tend to... They they say, okay, if you read the Old Testament, it's just all about wrath and the New Testament's about Jesus and and He is this kinder, gentler version of God. That's the way the liberals have presented Him. Because if you go back and study... Um, liberalism started you know, in that form in the 1800s, 19th century liberalism, and then it, it's still with us today. And we're going to see that as we, we work our way through and encounter things like feminism, and we've encountered other things as well. When, when liberal Christians look at the Old Testament, they are, they are embarrassed by it. And, I mean, you read it, and that you, I'm not just making that up or being mean to them. They really are embarrassed by it. They'll say that. And they say, oh, but, you know, we follow Jesus and, of course, only certain things that Jesus said. What Paul's doing, he's, he's showing here that he has, he would not agree with them, even though he you know, lived, you know, almost 2,000 years before them. Uh, he would disagree with them strongly. He shows here that Jesus is the object of our fear. We talk about Jesus being the object of our faith. You know, what do we, what do we, what do we have faith in? We have faith in Jesus and the, the completed work of Jesus, the satisfactory work of Jesus. But He is also the object of our fear, not just our faith. The New Testament is not saying something different than the Old Testament. Psalm 2, for example, it presents Messiah. It shows us His, his anger and His wrath toward His enemies. Okay, that that's clear. You look other passages and where you know he's going to rule the rod of iron there in Psalm two, and then other places where he's going to rule. And 
And then you come to the New Testament, and if you listen to the liberals, you think that you would find nothing about judgment, and that, of course, Jesus would never say anything about judgment or, or Him having anything to do with it. But what we find in Matthew 16 and Matthew 25 is Jesus says, I'm actually going to be the judge. And I'm going to have all of mankind stand before me. And I'm going to separate the sheep and the goats. Paul also said that Christ is going to be the judge. We'll look at 2 Corinthians 5.10 in a little bit. Even Peter said Jesus will hold all men accountable. And he's going to start with the church. 1 Peter 4.17 So, Paul is not in Ephesians or anywhere else presenting a religion that's different from the Old Testament. Now, there are a lot of things that are revealed, clarified. Uh, We have more information on the gospel. We know personally who Messiah is now and what he has done. And there's so much more theology and all but it's not at its core different. Because the, New, the Old Testament just was saying, and, and the whole point of it was like, there's a Messiah coming and God is going to save His people. And so it's not a different message. And the New Testament says God did send the Messiah and He saved His people. You see, and they both look to the cross. One looks forward and one looks backward. They're not saying different things. And that even has to do with what He calls believers to do here in the church. Third question we need to answer comes from this, that you know, there's, a, there's a broad range of meaning, as you saw there in that first question, that of this term fear, that can be terror on one hand, and it can be reverential respect on the other. And, and so how do we navigate that broad spectrum? So our third question is, what does it mean to fear Christ? Well, six years ago, and we can go to the next slide now. Uh, I I didn't have this. I wasn't doing slides back then. Um, this there's this kind of spectrum that we find in Scripture about the fear of God, and so you might remember we talked about how there's that idea of terror fear, and we talked about the, that this morning, kind of a review in Sunday school, adult Sunday school, about terror fear that that is what unbelievers have and they ought to have. That kind of fear of God, knowing they're under His wrath. But that doesn't belong to a believer, the terror. And so for a believer, we said back then that fearing God ranges from wholehearted loving obedience to trust, to delight. And then that becomes this, it's kind of like, you know, I could have done this like a, you know, climbing a mountain or something where there's that pinnacle of worship. So all of that together, the obedience and the trust and delight and all of that together, just burst into worship. That's all the fear of God. And you remember six years ago, we spent you know almost about two-thirds of a year at least doing that, going through it, because there's so much in the Bible about it. And we found that there's so much beautiful uh, teaching there about the fear of God. And for believers, it's not the, you know, being terrified of Him and afraid of Him. Well, so then what does it mean? And so I've kind of given you an overview there, but let's, let's dig into the New Testament. There, there are five passages in the New Testament that use this term fear, but also 
use it in that phrase, the fear of, and then a name of God. The fear of God, fear of the Lord, or fear of Christ. We were talking about earlier, right? So we've already, we've been looking at one, our passage. Okay, let's look at four other ones, or the, the other four, and see what we can learn about the fear of Christ. So turn over to Acts chapter 9, verse 31. So back to where uh, we read earlier, Acts 9, and in the end of, uh, of that section we read... So you remember from what Grant read here is that it starts out chapter 9 where Saul, who later becomes Paul, <clears throat> is breathing threats against the church and he got permission to go to Damascus and, and find any believers there, any believers in Jesus Christ, and he could arrest them and lock them up and then hopefully put them to death. That was the whole point. And, and so the, the church is like, you know, afraid of, okay, this guy... He, you know, he's got a lot of power and he's got a lot of zeal. And and so on his way, the risen Christ meets him. Knocks him down, blinds him, and then transforms him. And... The, the man who was targeting Christians, you remember from what we read, he became the target. Because now he was powerfully preaching Christ. And his compatriots who were all with him when he was chasing Christians, they're now trying to kill him. I mean, that just doesn't happen. That can only happen from the sovereign power, as a result of the sovereign power of the risen Christ. And so, they try to kill him, they send him away to rescue him, and then verse 31. This is a beautiful verse, after such a beautiful passage of God's redeeming grace. It says, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace, being built up, or strengthened, and going on in the fear of the Lord, and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it continued to increase. So it shows the beauty of what can happen to a church when they fear Christ. When they have that understanding of Christ that the early Christians had when this whole episode with Paul took place and what, what Christ did about it. And remember, that was Christ. Because remember what, what, did, what did Saul say? You know, he said, why are you persecuting me, Saul? Okay, he knew he was Lord... But it wasn't adding up. It's like, I'm on your side, Lord. I'm killing these people for you. So, who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus, the one you're persecuting. Paul had to know he was in a world of trouble. And right at that moment... He had to know that Jesus was perfectly justified in picking him up and casting him into hell. That is not at all what happened. He got him up, sent him into Damascus and brought a disciple to him. And then the rest of the disciples are still scared of him. So he sends Barnabas, go get that guy and bring him to the apostles and show him he's okay. Because he's my servant now. He was my enemy. He was a vicious enemy. But he's my servant. 
And because of that, the work of Christ, the sovereign power of the risen Christ working and transforming a vicious enemy into a humble servant, caused them to have this godly fear, this fear of Christ. And they flourished. It says that they were growing. They were thriving. Oh, how beautiful that is to consider. And so, as they thought about what God had done, what Christ Himself had done here in the life of Saul, something that had to seem to them impossible, they came away with a sense of wonder and awe. Awe at the power of Christ. You know, they were probably thinking, Oh, Lord, you know, I, I just hope maybe He'll, you know, have an accident on the way and, you know, or something, stop Him, you know. And Jesus had other plans. Oh, no, no, I'm going to convert Him. And so, fearing God, they feared nothing else. And you notice what's missing in this passage when he talks about the fear of God? There's no terror. doesn't say anything about terror. It talks about this divine comfort, the comfort of the Holy Spirit. There was peace, and they're growing, and they're thriving. There's no terror. Instead, godly fear inspired boldness to serve Christ, divine comfort and growth. They beheld the sovereign power of the risen Christ. Turn now to Romans 3. We look at another passage. So, Romans 3. And we'll start in verse 10. We're, we're working our way to verse 18, but Romans 3, verse 10. Here, at what Paul is doing here, the, the same guy from Acts 9, right? They got saved. So he's writing a letter now as the Apostle Paul to the church at Rome. And, and what he's doing in this letter, the first part of it, is he's showing that in the first three chapters that everybody is under sin, right? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's That's kind of the high point of this argument, right? But what he's doing to get there is he's saying that... Immoral pagans, they're under sin, because everybody else agreed with that, right? He says, oh, but also moral pagans are under sin. Well, the Jews, they're like, oh, yeah, I agree with both of those. And he says, oh, and by the way, all the Jews are under sin. So he says, you divide humanity up in those three different ways, they're all under sin. So that's what he's talking about there. And so in, in building to that, that the top of that argument there, which will come in 23 and 24, he first says... As he's saying that this, he's, he's condemning all men as being under sin. So verse 10, quoting from the Old Testament. Again, remember there's no, it's the same message, right? There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There's none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There's none who does good. There's not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in all their are in their paths, and the path of peace have they not known. And then this there is no fear of God before their eyes.
Unbelievers reject God because they don't fear Him. At least the ones he's talking about. We talked in, in Sunday school, there's different groups. We're talking about those who don't fear God. Groups of unbelievers that don't fear God. They lack the sobering reality of judgment. There's a lack of holy seriousness about obedience. There's a lack of holy seriousness about reverence for God who sovereignly rules. He rules with absolute authority over His creation. For them, God is not a factor. And you were that way before Christ, and probably, and you know, you've known people like that. God's just not a factor for them. They make decisions all day long, and God is not a factor in that. So he's talking about unbelievers there, this holy seriousness about obedience. And that is something, the holy seriousness about obedience is something that believers should have. Or is it? Okay, so do I have any proof for that? Yeah, turn to 2 Corinthians 5. 2 Corinthians, we're going to look at chapters 5 and 7 here briefly. Second Corinthians 5. And what's going on here is, <clears throat> verse 10, Paul, that, that's the setting for what he's going to say in verse 11. So verse 11 is where he's going to talk about the fear of God. But Second Corinthians 5, verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. In other words, we're all going to be held accountable. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. So here, the fear of the Lord is this sobering awe that we're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. You see, so, you know, if... As, as I'm moving through this, and you, and you think, okay, John's using words like joy and delight, and he's going to later use, you know, love and things like that. And like, okay, are you going to just kind of tell us that we don't have to, you know, we don't have to obey, and, you know, we just need to love each other, kind of, you know, world's message. No. We do have to have this serious, uh, holy seriousness about obedience. We need to have this sobering awe because we are going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And sometimes, yes, it's true, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. That doesn't mean we're not held accountable. It just means we're not going to be sent away from God eternally in punishment. Okay, but we will be held accountable. <clears throat> That sobering awe, Paul says, is what motivates them to share the message of Christ. I mean, when we think about it, I'm going to have to stand before Christ on His judgment seat. I need to be telling people about Him and the salvation that they can find in Him alone. The fear of God is the sobering acknowledgement of accountability. The fear of God is the sobering acknowledgement of accountability. And you can see where we're going. There's a lot of this building, right? <clears throat> Commentator Philip Hughes explains, Paul himself had a deep consciousness of the awe which should be inspired in the heart of every servant who will be required to give an account of his stewardship to his master. 
You see, we're going to be held accountable. And you know, we might think that, you know, I can just kind of you know, coast as long as I'm not too bad. Hmm. We're going to be held accountable. Turn now to 2 Corinthians 7. So turn about a page over probably. 2 Corinthians 7. So what's going on building up to that in verses 14 through 18 of chapter 6, Paul prohibits believers from being unequally yoked with unbelievers. So whatever kind of uh, close, intimate relationship, which definitely includes marriage, but other types of close relationships, Paul says, don't be unequally yoked with them because you're not one with them. And and so as he, he gives that, then he also gives uh, some Old Testament promises about God. And this is why God dwells in us. He dwells with us. And because of his holy presence, we can't go and join with them. And so we come to 2 Corinthians 7, 1. Therefore, in light of all that, having these promises that God is in us, with us, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. The fear of God, then, is holy seriousness that pursues perfect purity inside and out. It's a holy seriousness that pursues perfect purity inside and out. It's not merely outward. Because whenever you have... There are unbelievers who obey God out of fear, but it's that terror fear. And for them, it's all outward. You you think about the Pharisees. They obeyed God. Now, it was inconsistent. And it was for the wrong motives. But this is a purity inside and out that we will pursue. Obviously, not perfectionism. And, and looking back on those passages, then, we see that the fear of God is multifaceted. You know, it's got all these different sides to it that we can enjoy and, and observe and study. Uh, facets of beauty, just like you take a, a beautiful uh, gemstone, a diamond or something, and it's got all these different facets, different sides. And each one you turn it and you see the beauty of it. And the fear of God is like that. It's it's really hard to put the fear of God into one brief um, definition. We're going to do that because we, we need to have something we can wrap our minds around and take away with us. But then we want to remember all those different facets as best we can. And so that takes us next to the next slide where this is kind of that an attempt to give us a fairly short definition to wrap our minds around. The fear of Christ is a sense of joyful wonder. And I gave this at the beginning. It's a sense of joyful wonder and sobering awe at His majesty. And by majesty, I chose that word because it, it, it stands for His greatness, uh, all the awesome characteristics of God, His, His grandeur, and all, all that is just so wonderful and glorious. So, I use the word majesty. It stands for His, his awesome power. Uh, all of that together. Okay? For the believer, the fear of Christ is a sense of joyful wonder and sobering awe 
at His majesty. And so then, going to the next slide, we look at some of the particulars about that, breaking it down some. We, we saw these elements, right? It fuels a holy seriousness about obedience, knowing that we'll be held accountable. See, so it's fueling that holy seriousness because we'll be held accountable. Now, this, the second part is mostly going to be coming from next week. So this is kind of a wetting your appetite. So, uh, And we're going to look at that more. We saw that a little bit in Acts 9.31, but it'll come out more particularly next week. It trembles with joyful, loving delight in God and His Word. Trembles with joyful, loving delight in God and His Word. Okay? You see, the person who fears God... They love His Word because it belongs to God. And and there's a delight in it, but there's also this idea of trembling at it. We're going to talk about what that means. You know, because it's not that we read God's Word and we're terrified and we're afraid of. It's not that. Okay? So we'll, we'll talk about that more next week. It produces, among other things, a boldness to share the gospel we saw. Comfort, faithfulness, growth. The pursuit of purity. And then whenever the fear of Christ is faithfully present, the church thrives. And that's what we want to take away, right? We individually and as a church need to have this fear of Christ, this holy seriousness, this loving, joyful delight. Okay, so the fourth question we need to ask is this. How does the fear of Christ tie in with the idea of being filled by the Spirit? Because, you know, just so we don't lose our way, that's what we're talking about here is Ephesians 5, right? And so, in verse 21, uh, that's a part of what he said back, if we go back to Ephesians uh, 5, there in verse 18... Don't get drunk with wine, but be filled by the Spirit. And then he's explaining to us what being filled by the Spirit looks like. And you remember there are those those participles. And so they break down into four different activities or, or mindsets and things we should do. Uh, that's what being filled by the Spirit is. It's speaking to one another, psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. Singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. Giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord. And then... Verse 21, submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. Remember, that's that's the last one of the four. Submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. So, so how do these tie in? Why, why does he say submitting to one another and then in the fear of Christ? So, those are joined together in the context, in the verse. So, we have to, okay, why? What's he getting at? Well, there are plenty of unbelievers who do obey God out of terror fear. And I was talking about that earlier, how it's, it's outward. Our motivation has to be different. We have to be filled by the Holy Spirit in order to be different. You know, so I was talking about how I, I grieved over that person saying, you know, admiring radical Muslims. Ours has to be different. But how can it be different? Because we have the Holy Spirit. And we need to be filled by that Holy Spirit in order for it to truly be different. And so, if we delight in God's Word out of godly fear, and that delight, it's going to be more next time, so just kind of stay with me here, okay? And, and, and trust me, and I'll prove it to you next time, okay? 
If we delight in God's Word out of godly fear, then we'll obey Him with joy. Dane Ortland explained it this way. He says, we don't need the Holy Spirit to, or the Spirit to obey God. We do need the Spirit to enjoy obeying God, having that delight in obeying God. Right? Where we say, okay, what is it that's going to please my Lord? Remember we saw earlier in Ephesians in our study. Okay? So, so how... I want to please the Lord if I am a believer in Jesus Christ. And again, you know, there's the, the Pharisees. They, they, they served God. And they did it better than most people. Just, you know, if you're going with the, you know, checking off the boxes. They were inconsistent. Yes, there were things they missed. But they, it was all outward for them. And they did it without joy. And so Paul goes from, you know, being a Pharisee of Pharisees, the best of the best, obeying God without joy, and then now what he's teaching us is to obey God and to enjoy doing it. Many people in Christianity, even today, have that same mindset. They are very particular about obeying God and, and all these different rules and everything and checking off the boxes, but it's not the same thing. And this is kind of a tie into where we're going with this uh, as we move further in the passage. But a godly wife should find delight in submitting to her husband's authority and leadership. Now, ladies, I know that's not easy. I know I'm not easy to live with. And, but yet, Paul tells my dear wife that she has to find delight and submitting to me. Now, I realize that that's an enormously tall order that's impossible without the Holy Spirit. She should find delight in that. Husbands, we should find delight in sacrificing our time and energy to care for our wife's needs. I know we get tired, you know, and and there's so much to do, and, you know, then she's got you know, a list of honeydews for us, and, you know, we've done as many of those as we can but yet she still needs this. We need to find delight in that. And one of the things that, you know, scary things he's going to tell us to do is that in later in Ephesians 5 is that we have to help our wife with her sin. And we have to find delight in helping her with her sin because she will bite back when we do that. Okay? And we have to find delight in it. And children who knew this was coming... If you're a godly child, you should find delight in obeying your parents. And having been a sinful parent, I know how hard that is for you. But you have to find delight in it if you're a child of God. You may not really like the things they ask you to do. But you know that you have a, a transformed heart. Whenever, more often than not, or at least on an increasing basis, you do it and you say, I, I want to obey. Part of me doesn't really, but there's a part of me that says, okay, get in line, self, and we're, we're going to enjoy this. I'm going to delight in doing what mom said, doing what dad said. But our fear of God won't and can't include delighting in His Word apart from filling by the Spirit. We have to have that. That's why it is tied in as the fourth element of what it looks like to be filled by the Spirit. 
Now, our, our last question, number five, what does the fear of Christ have to do with mutual submission? We had a couple lessons on that. Okay, what does this have to do with it? Because this is even closer, tied closer. It's in the same verse. Okay, we are to submit, be submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. The fear of Christ gives us a holy seriousness so that we don't take that duty lightly. That we say, oh, it doesn't matter. I'm amazed that Paul put this in this verse, the fear of Christ, and yet this verse doesn't get a lot of treatment in the commentaries and in preaching. And and part of it's because we're not really sure what he's doing here, and so we punt. And then others are like, "I (laughs) I don't want to do this submitting to one another. But he puts the fear of Christ in there to say, you better take this seriously. And don't try to explain it away. Don't say it doesn't doesn't apply to you. Because he says one another. That holy seriousness should produce in us a profound humility so that we are willing to prefer one another in honor. We're willing to put others first, to die to self to meet their needs. Things that are impossible to do well and to do joyfully without the Spirit. And, of course, we're coming to verse 22 and following, right? Infamous passage. Feminists despise that passage. In all their different forms, they despise it. Some men use that passage to abuse their wives or their children. Godly men and women find these duties in verses 22 and following very difficult to do faithfully. So, can we actually find delight in doing them? Can we do them well? Is that even possible? Yes, indeed. But to do that, we require the power of the Holy Spirit. He must produce in us the Christ-like qualities of deep humility. So we have to have this... In the fear of Christ means that we have this deep humility toward Christ. As as Paul learned, like, who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus. And then... All of a sudden, there's this deep humility as he's converted. And that deep humility then spreads to others, toward others. So that, okay, I will submit to you, not necessarily in the sense of obeying, but in serving and meeting needs, dying to self. There's also this Christ-like quality of other-centered service. Again, Paul was like, I'm going to serve you, Lord. He said, okay, it goes this way. Get busy and work for my church. Because that's how you work for me. And and so that's we have to have that, that vertical first, and then the horizontal comes in. Only in the Spirit's power and in the fear of our sovereign Lord Jesus Christ will we be able to do all of this and do it to His glory. Next week, as I said, I want to show how the New Testament writers built upon this rich Old Testament teaching about the fear of Christ. And and for those of you who were here six years ago, and if you actually remember much of that, um, then it's not going to be just rehash, okay? Because I'm going to bring in some, some... We're going to be building on that, okay? There's some beautiful things to consider uh, that, that just that have blown me away. Uh, in the last couple years, <clears throat> and and I want to share that with you, the the joy of that.
but how the New Testament writers built on that foundation. We're going to see the, the fear of God with its aspects of love and joy and delight in God and in His Word. Okay? A couple passages for you to meditate on before next Sunday. Psalm 112, 1, and Isaiah 60, verse 5. This should start blowing your mind, okay? And you should start getting more of the idea that the fear of Christ, the fear of God, is not that I need to be afraid of Him, terrified of Him. It should be something very, very different. Back in Acts chapter 9... The believers there saw the sovereign power of the risen Christ. They saw how Christ could knock a a powerful man down, to knock him to the ground and blind him. But then, Christ could transform Paul's, Saul's murderous heart to be someone who loved so deeply, served so humbly. A major transformation, which has happened to each one of us if we are in Jesus Christ. Jesus turned him into a servant of the church. And so as they beheld the the awe and wonder at the power of Jesus' cross and the power of His resurrection, they're working in this seemingly impossible problem. They're like, wow. That is the risen Christ. That is the one who shed His blood. And they saw the effect of that blood on Saul's murderous heart. They saw the resurrection power giving him new life. Giving him life for the first time. And they stood in awe and wonder. As we come to the table, let us think about that what has happened there and how we need to worship this risen Christ in awe, in wonder, in godly fear.